Hey, this is Pastor Allen. I'm the lead pastor here at First Baptist Church of Naples, and we are so happy that you have chosen to join us as we go through God's Word together. God's doing some amazing things here, and we pray that God's Word will transform you from the inside out. Our mission here is to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ of all peoples. And our hope is, is that you are being a disciple that makes disciples. Now, if you don't have a church home, we would love for you to join us either in person or continuing online as we go into God's Word together every week. But if you are a member of another church, we don't want this to be in any way, shape, form, or fashion a substitute for you being connected to your local body. So our prayer is, is that God uses His Word to change you and to change others. So we pray that God will use you and this message for His glory. Have a great day. Take your copy of God's Word and turn to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2 is where we're going to begin. At the end of our service, we'll have an opportunity uh, to affirm uh, Dr. DuPay uh, as our head of school at the First Baptist Academy. And we've had awesome services. The Lord has really blessed us in the first two. And I know that God's got something special in this service. So let's stand as we read God's Word. Mark chapter 2. And we'll begin in verse number 23. Mark chapter 2, verse 23. The Holy Spirit says through John Mark. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar, the high priest, and ate of the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And Jesus said to the man with withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. He looked around at them with anger and grieved at the hardness of their heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. You may be seated. I don't know if you've heard of a people group called the nuns. Uh, this is not Catholic nuns, this is, these are people who have no re religious affiliation at all. Uh, people will say that, that do surveys that around 30% of Americans say that they have no religious affiliation. In Collier County, uh, something that I have found is that 65% of our residents would be considered nuns. That is no religious affiliation at all. Generation Z, which is my children's generation, the gener generation that's mainly at our academy, although there's a new generation past them that is up and coming. Generation Z is the least religiously affiliated generation. Around 35% of them identify with a religion. In 2021, a Gallup poll revealed that for the first time in American history, church membership, people who identify as members of a church in America, is now less than 50%. And so for the first time in, in, in history that we know of, in American history, that those who are members of a church are actually in the minority in America. The Southern Baptist Convention has lost over a million members in the past three years. Barna 
did a study in 2019 that said that 64% of those aged 18 to 29 who grew up in the church have left the church after they leave their parents' home. Now, I don't want to just sound some alarm bells and scare everybody, but I do want you to understand that the church in America is in decline, and we desperately need revival. But just because the church is in decline in America doesn't mean that it's in decline around the world. The kingdom of God is advancing all around the world, and many people uh, in other countries are, are finding Christ, and Christ is changing lives. But yet, what's the reason? Why is it that the church in America is declining and that there's a rise of those who say they have no religious affiliation at all? Well, there's some reasons. One may be just a secularization of society. Our society has become more secular, more scientism has come, and scientism, there's nothing uh, anti-Christian in science. It's just the fact that scientism has uh, now become a new religion of the world. There's the sexual revolution in our society. I think also the polarization of politics, that now within the church, uh, people judge each other by who they vote for, and so therefore there's a rift, and it's caused people to want to leave the church. I think another reason is that parents are not taking seriously their responsibility to disciple their children. There's also, in the past few years, we've seen the revelation of racism, systemic racism and racism in the church, and also the uncovering of sexual abuse that is found within those in leadership. But I think if you take all of that, I think one of the main reasons why people don't want religious affiliation in our day, why some are even deconstructing their faith, is because in reality, they just don't want to be religious. Why? Because religion is seen by many in our society as being hypocritical and abusive. Why? Because the heart of religion is attempting by my actions, by my way of life to earn favor from God, to be right in the eyes of God or to be right in the eyes of others on the basis of what I do or do not do. And so what you need to understand at the very onset of this message is this, is that Jesus did not come to start a new religion. He didn't come to start another religion. Jesus came to end all religion so that we can rest from religion forever. And so Mark here in his gospel is continuing to show us the conflict between Jesus and their religious establishment. These two stories that we read are combined because of what they deal with, but, but what we have to notice is that everywhere Jesus turns, the religious are challenging his authority. They've challenged his authority to forgive sins, they challenged who he eats with. They challenged him how much he eats or how little he eats. And now they're going to challenge him over the Sabbath. And what we're going to see in these challenges on the Sabbath is that Jesus is going to expose the cruelty of religion so that we can see the beauty of his gospel. And what I pray that all of us leave here learning is this, is that we learn that Jesus is better than religion. So number one, let's look at the cruelty of religion. Jesus and his disciples are out walking in a grain field, probably outside the city of Capernaum. Uh, it is probably early Saturday morning. They are on their way to church. They're on their way to synagogue. Uh, there uh, was uh, no Dunkin' Donuts. I know some of you may be on your way here. You went and stopped by Dunkin' Donuts. There, there was no Chick-fil-A because Chick-fil-A was closed on Shabbat. Uh, and they, they were hungry. There was nothing to eat. And so they passed through a grain field and they pluck some of the grains. Now, they weren't stealing, according to the law of Moses, Deuteronomy 23, the poor or the sojourner or the hungry could go by somebody's field and don't bring a tractor, don't, don't bring a machine, but you could pluck some of the grain or 
pluck an apple or whatever, and you're totally fine because that's the way that God provided the hungry with food. And so the disciples are out here, they're walking along the grain field. And then the Bible says that basically out from nowhere came the Pharisees, came the religious people. And, and no one told them where Jesus was. And so in my mind, they were stalking Jesus. Uh, every move you make, every step you take, I'll be watching you. Oh, can't you see? <laughs> And so here, as they're out in the field, the Pharisees flow, uh, throw a flag on the field and they charge the disciples with breaking the Sabbath. Now, for those of you that are maybe new to church or you weren't here over the summer, the Sabbath was something that God instituted in creation. Six days you work, one day you rest. It was a gift given to humanity. It was meant to refresh and reorient God's people on God. It was a day for restoration, a day for healing, and a day for celebration. It was a weekly reminder that we are not loved on the basis of what we do, but we are loved on the basis of who we are in God. But the Sabbath uh, for the Jews in Jesus' day was very important. And it was one of the two external badges that separated Israel from the other nations. There were the two. One was circumcision. The other was Sabbath keeping. Uh, one is very obvious. You either are or you aren't. The other one has gray areas. And so one of the reasons that God sent Israel into exile, sent them away, was their failure to keep the Sabbath. And so the Pharisees, that 1% of the society, 6,000 strong in Jesus' day, they were scared that if Israel repeated what they had done in the past, failed to keep the Sabbath, that God would send them back to exile. They were already under Roman occupation. And so they thought, well, the worst would be exile. And so they believed that if Israel could just keep the Sabbath, just keep the law, be obedient enough that God would, would send the Messiah to deliver them from Rome and to reestablish his reign. And so these Pharisees were self-appointed Sabbath police. And so they see Jesus and his disciples. The disciples are eating in the grain field and they come to Jesus and they say, why are your guys doing what is unlawful? Now, the first question we want to ask is, was Jesus and his disciples breaking the law of God? The answer is no. What were they breaking then? Well, the Pharisees had made a list of rules on the Sabbath. These are rules of things that you could do and things that you could do. As a matter of fact, the Pharisees loved making rules. They, they made rules on top of rules. And these rules are not found in the Torah, even though the Torah, uh, the first five books of the Old Testament, have 613 laws. No, the Pharisees and the rabbis in Jesus' day, they made a new set of rules on top of those 613 rules found in the Mishnah. And uh, the Mishnah was the opinions of rabbis uh, over the years. And this was actually codified, made into second, a second law. And uh, they created a list of 1,500 rules on top of the 613 rules. These 1,500 rules were called the halakha, which that word means to walk. And this, these rules were to ensure that the people walk the right way. And so chapter seven of the Mishnah, I know this is exciting for you, but stay with me. Chapter seven of the Mishnah had 39 acts of work that were forbidden. So let me give you an example of some of those. On the Sabbath, you can't cook on the Sabbath. I don't know if crock pots count, but you couldn't cook on the Sabbath. You can't pick anything up on the Sabbath. Can't throw anything. So football was out. So today at one o'clock, you'll see all those Sabbath breakers right out there. You can't pick your teeth. So you can't floss, can't brush. You can't light a fire. And, and these are, there's a bunch of other things. 
And, and so you see this, even to this day, some Orthodox Jews keep strict Sabbath laws. I mean, these 39 acts are still in place in Judaism today. As a matter of fact, just a few weeks ago, I was in a hotel on the Sabbath, and over the years I've seen this, and one of the things that they have is they have what's called a Sabbath elevator. And uh, this elevator doesn't, you don't press any buttons because if you press a button, that would be um, starting or lighting a fire. And so these elevators just go up every floor and they come down every floor. And so strict Jews just go on there and they just wait and they're very, very slow and they take forever. But not only do they have Sabbath elevators on the Sabbath, but they also have another set of elevators called the Gentile elevators. And these are elevators that normally work. And so just a few, last week or so, uh, I was there on the Sabbath and uh, I was in line to get on the Gentile elevator because I know not to get on the Sabbath elevator. And uh, so I get in there, the thing opens up and these other Jews were standing there behind me and they get in the Gentile elevator with me and ask me to press the buttons. Because <laughs> they did not want to break the Sabbath, but they did not care if I broke the Sabbath, okay? The Mishnah says uh, that the rules about the Sabbath are as mountains hanging by a hair. Um, the scripture is scanty, but the rules are many. And so they took what God said about the Sabbath to make it holy, to remember and to observe, and they put a hedge around it. They put rules on top of rules, and they took their personal applications uh, that the rabbis made on the Sabbath and made them absolute. So sometimes we do that. Sometimes we take what God's Word says, and we think, well, this is our personal uh, moral ethic, and we think that even though it's not necessarily in the Bible, this is our personal moral ethic, and therefore we think we should put that on other people. And so that's what they did. Maybe I'll give you an example this way. Just imagine, it doesn't say this, but imagine if the Bible says, thou shalt not drink milk. And so the way do you keep that law is you don't drink milk. Well, uh, the Pharisees in Jesus' day and the rabbis would say, well, we need to make sure that nobody drinks milk. And so if, the only way that we can ensure that no one drinks milk is that they do not walk down the dairy aisle of a grocery store. And so they make another law that says, you, thou shalt not walk down the dairy aisle at the grocery store. But then someone said, well, you know what? What if someone gets like the aisle over to that and they kind of see from a distance that dairy product and they're going to be tempted. So maybe we should just make it where you have to be three aisles away from the dairy aisle. And so they think, well, that's good. That'll protect people. And then, then somebody says, you know what? But man, if you're three aisles away, what if you accidentally walk down like two aisles away and then you look and you're tempted? So we've got to make another rule. And that rule is you cannot go to a store that sells dairy. And you think, well, that's something. So, but then what if you drive by a store that sells dairy? So we're going to make a rule that you have to drive around a store, at least 200 feet around a store that sells dairy. But then what if you see a cow? <laughs> and you see how this can keep going. That's what happened in Jesus' day. And so Jesus here, they're getting called for breaking the Sabbath, even though they didn't break the law of God, they broke the traditions of man. And so Jesus responds with their question, with a question. He says, have you not read? So these guys were experts, experts in Torah. So this is a little bit of a sarcastic dig. And what Jesus is doing is this. They were challenging him over the traditions of the rabbis, not the word of God. And so Jesus takes them back to the Bible and he doesn't take them to Genesis 1 and, and doesn't talk about the commands of the Sabbath. He doesn't go to Exodus 20. He goes to 1 Samuel 21. 
And it's a little bit of an obscure story in which David, who was God's anointed, and his men, when they were on a run, on the run from Saul, they were went out to town. There was no McDonald's. There was no grocery store, nowhere to go. They were tired. They were hungry. They had no food. And so they went to David's friend's house, uh, who is the high priest, a guy named Ahimelech. His son is Abiathar, and Abiathar is actually more, the more well-known high priest. And so when the Bible here talks about Abiathar, the days of Abiathar, it's because he was the more well-known. His dad was Ahimelech, and Ahimelech actually dies a few days after this incident. And so anyway, too much information. And so they ask for food from Ahimelech, and Ahimelech says, well, listen, we haven't had time to go to the grocery store. All we have is this bread of presents. And so every week, the priests were to make 12 loaves of bread that were to be in the tabernacle. And, and then after the Sabbath was over, uh, the, high, the priest and the high priest could eat of the bread, but only the high priest. Well, in this moment, that's all they had. And Ahimelech, uh, because David is God's anointed, gives David the bread and David gives it to his men. Now you say, well, that's an interesting story. Uh, but here's what the point is, is that God did not condemn David for eating the bread or giving the bread to um, the people. Why? Because the rule wasn't meant to hurt. It was meant to bless. The rule made the bread separate and holy, but yet in this moment, it was to do the greater good. And so what Jesus is saying is this, is that there's a precedence for an, exam for an exam exemption, an exception. What you're talking about here, plucking grain heads, is a gray area in the law, and your interpretation says it's wrong, but I'm not bound by your interpretation because Jesus here is saying, I have as much authority as Ahimelech and David did in that situation. They didn't break the law. I'm not breaking the law. You guys have a ton of rules, but your rules don't agree with the Bible. As a matter of fact, you, you got a question you got to answer. Do you keep your rules and disobey the Bible, or do you keep the Bible and repent of your rules. And so Jesus then says in verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man to enjoy, not man for the Sabbath to endure. That is that God made the Sabbath to be a blessing, not a burden. The Sabbath was meant to not enslave, but to liberate. And so he's saying, you've got it backwards. You've taken that which is good and made it evil. And we do this stuff all the time. And we even do it with religious things. We take things that God meant to be good and we make them this, that, or the other and we make them legalistic restrictions and that's not what God wants. We don't take good things that are meant for our good and make them evil things. Well, that's what they were doing. It would be like this. Imagine this afternoon, you say, you know what? I love my kids. I love my grandkids. I wanna take them to get ice cream. Ice cream, you scream, we all scream for ice cream. And so you take them to the Royal Scoop. You ever been to the Royal Scoop? It's pretty nice here in town. You go there, have all that, that big old display of all the good stuff. It's like three degrees below zero in the shop. And you go in there and, and you look at all the different flavors and you say to your kids, or your grandkids, you say, look, we're gonna get ice cream, but you can't get any flavor but vanilla. And there's no sprinkles, no chocolate sauce, no whipped cream, no waffle bowl, no, no sugar cone. You got to put it in a styrofoam plastic bowl. You got to eat it with your right hand and your spoon. And if you get any on your face, I'm going to throw it away. If you get any on your clothes, I'm going to throw it away. And you have less than two minutes to eat it. And if you eat it longer than two minutes, I'm going to throw it away. Enjoy. <laughs> yeah. That's what the Pharisees were doing with the word of God. They were adding to it and putting so many things that you don't even want to do it, right? 
Sometimes that's how some people feel about church. They think that church or being a Christian is just a bunch of set of rules. And, 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 and instead of enjoying a relationship with Jesus, they're just enduring religion. And why? Because that's what we've made of it. And that's what the Pharisees were doing. And so now you're going to see this exemplified and amplified the true heart of these Pharisees by the story that follows. And so chapter three, verse one tells us that immediately after Jesus and his disciples have this little run in with the uh, religious police, uh, they go to church. And so they all go to church together. So they have this altercation in the parking lot and then they all come in. And so while they're at church, there's a man in the, in the place that everybody knew. His name was Bob. I mean, it's in the Allen version. We're just going to call him Bob. And Bob had a withered hand. And we don't know what that issue was. Uh, we don't know if he had his hand cut off. We don't know if he had arthritis. We don't know if it was deformed. It wasn't life-threatening, but it was a problem. This man had to endure a lot of social outcasts because in that day, if you had a withered hand, you were considered to be cursed by God. Uh, he couldn't work like normal people could. He couldn't go to temple in Jerusalem. And so he had a lot of uh, issues because of his disability. And so Jesus here walks in there, the synagogue. They know that Bob is there. And so the Bible says in verse number two that they're watching Jesus. So everybody's watching Jesus like a hawk. What's he going to do? Because they all knew that Jesus healed people on the Sabbath and they kind of had a problem with that, but they needed to have something else to criticize because they came to church not to worship God, but they came to criticize. Now, let me just tell you something right now. It doesn't take any size to criticize. And we've got to be very careful not to come to church looking for something to criticize. Because let me just tell you something. It's not hard to find something to criticize. But the fact that you can criticize is not a sign of great spirituality. It's a sign of great spiritual pride. And so Jesus tells the man to come here. This guy probably is trying to hide in the shadows. Everybody knows he's there, but you know, Jesus has him stand up. Could you imagine if I called on one of you to stand up? I won't do it. I thought about doing it in the other service, but I won't do it in this one. And so now they have this guy stand up and now the, the Pharisees are like, we got him, we got him. He just can't help himself. I mean, he's always healing people. I mean, it's Jesus. He's always helping people, healing people. We got him. He's gonna break the Sabbath because even in that day, here's the thought. Rabbi Shammai, one of the rabbis, a famous rabbi said that if someone is sick on the Sabbath, you don't heal them, wait till tomorrow. So Jesus has this man stand up. Jesus asks this question, verse four. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? Now, why does Jesus ask this question? He asked this question because everyone knew the law was about doing good and saving lives. The law itself, even though maybe you think it's rigid, uh, it's really an expression of doing good and condemning evil. The law never condemns doing good, but always condemns doing evil. And so Jesus here is teaching that the very purpose behind the law was to do good and save lives. And so you would just expect everyone to say, well, the, the law says to do good. The law says to save lives. But instead of them saying anything, they said nothing. They were silent. They didn't say a word. And it exposes their hearts. This moment exposes that these guys didn't care about anybody. They were frauds. They didn't have a heart for doing good. They didn't have a heart for saving lives. Before church, they had no sympathy for the hungry. And at church, they had no compassion for the hurting. They didn't care. And that's why a lot of people are turned off by the church and religion is because they come and they see a bunch of hypocrites that don't really care about anything but their rules. And so Jesus looked around at them and was angry. And what this tells you is you can be good and angry. 
and he was grieved at the hardness of the heart. These guys were experts in the law of Moses and they missed the point of the law. They're more concerned about their regulations than they are this man's restoration. And here's what you got to understand with, with our Savior, Jesus Christ. He doesn't care if you get all the small details right, if you get the big things wrong. And so going to church is good. Tithing, giving 10% of your income is good. Reading your Bible is good. But if you're a self-righteous jerk, it doesn't matter. Right? Because God desires mercy rather than sacrifice. And so Jesus looks at this man. They're all in disdain. And he says, stretch out your hand. And I'm sure this guy didn't want anybody to see his hand. It's like, he's probably thinking, I haven't even looked at the hand lately. It looks pretty, pretty bad. It's kind of like me looking at my retirement right now. I don't want to look. Can I get a witness on that? You enjoying the economy? <laughs> I don't want to look. Stretches it out completely restored, just like brand new. Why? Because that's what the Sabbath was all about. That's what church is all about. It's not about oppressing people. It's about restoring what is broken and replenishing what is drained. And so you would think that these Pharisees, these religious people would have at least been happy for the man, but instead, they leave church mad and plotted murder. <laughs> Could you imagine leaving church and we're going to kill the preacher? <laughs> Please don't do that. <laughs> if you do, call the cops first. <laughs> well, who do they plot murder with? The Herodians. Now you say, well, what does that have to do with anything? It's so ironic. Because the Pharisees and the Herodians hated each other. Like, hated each other. It's Democrats and Republicans, Republicans and Democrats, sworn enemies. The Herodians were not devout Jews. They were Hellenists. They were loyal to the evil Herods. They were very political. They were looking for political solutions to the problems of society. They were not kosher. They were pro-Rome. They were liberals. They were progressives. And the Pharisees were the antithesis. They were the evangelical, Torah-believing nationalists. But they had one thing in common. They hated Jesus. And so, the enemy of my enemy is my best friend. And they plot murder together. And think about this. Jesus asked, is it lawful on the Sabbath, on the Sabbath, to harm and kill or to do good and save? And these guys choose on the Sabbath to do harm and kill Jesus. And it tells you that these guys were hypocrites. They used religion as a smokescreen to do the most cruel and horrible things. On the outside, they looked so pious. They looked so holy. But on the inside, they were evil and dirty. And let me tell you something. Phariseeism is alive and well today in the church. See, in Jesus' day, no one would have ever thought the Pharisees were the bad guys. Like we hear the Pharisees and we think, oh, they're horrible. In Jesus' day, they were well respected. They were admired. They were well thought of. They were the good guys. Well, sadly, in our day, people that we think sometimes are the good guys hide behind a mask of religion and do all kinds of evil and harmful things. That's why people are turned off by the church. Because sadly, history is filled with those who do harm to others in the name of Jesus. 
And so I want to share with you before we go to our next little thought is 10 signs that you may be a Pharisee. This is from a recovering Pharisee. And I'm not going to do this in a Jeff Foxworthy way, but just let's just go number one. You might be a Pharisee if you like rules a lot. If you say a person is not a Christian, if they don't agree with you, how can someone say what they say and be a Christian? How can someone do what they do? How can someone vote who they voted for and be a Christian? Three, you think of yourself as the guardian of what is right and what is wrong. And so you say to people, you can either agree with me or you can be wrong. You're quick to criticize, slow to compliment. You see only the bad, the not good enough and ugly in things, but miss out on the good. Six, you think people should be more like you. You say, if people would just be more like me, the world would be a better place. Seven, you don't hang out with people that you think are far from God. Those people. We don't spend time with those people. Eight, the rule is more important than the reality and the process is more important than the person. You don't care. You just want your rules to be kept. Nine, you care more about people's opinions of you than God's and you want people to notice what you do. So everything you do, you put it on social media for the world to see how great of a person you think you are. 10, you hold yourself, but especially others, to a standard that's higher than Jesus. We could go on and on, but what you're going to notice is that Phariseeism always kills. Kills joy, kills love, it kills peace. It's the cruelty of religion. But let's not only see the cruelty of religion, but I want you to see the beauty of Jesus in this text. See, these two stories give us a comparison, a comparison between the way of Jesus and the way of religion. See, the, the Pharisees, to, to the Pharisees, the Sabbath was just a rule. It was rigid. It was unbending. The Sabbath was bearing, was a burden to bear rather than a blessing to enjoy. The Sabbath brought death, not life. So some people view coming to church. It's a burden to bear death rather than life. And why is that? Why is it that they had this feeling of the Sabbath is because the reason why they were doing it. They weren't doing it out of love for God. They were, they were motivated by fear. I mean, that's the heart of religion. The heart of religion is fear. The Pharisees started out with this desire for holiness, but that morphed into a fear of occupation. That morphed into a fear of exile, not they didn't do this because they loved God. They didn't do this because they loved other people. It was their fear that made them rule followers. It was their fear that made them religious. It is the fear of suffering and the fear of hell that often makes people religious. I don't want to suffer. I'm going to be religious because if I think if I could just rub God the right way, that I won't suffer. I won't go to hell. And what happens is that this fear manifests itself in anger. And so that's why you have these great religious people are fiercely angry, not because of the hurt against God, not against the hurt of society. They're angry because it affects them because they're afraid that if others are doing things that are not right, they'll somehow look bad and they'll somehow go to hell over it. Fear also can masquerade itself as passion. Sometimes the most passionate religious people are the most 
fearful people. Why? Where does this fear come from? This fear comes from a hole in our lives. See, religion is all about filling a hole, filling a void. In, in everyone that is born, there's an inner insecurity, this inner insecurity that we know that we're not right. Even if you don't believe in God, there's this inner insecurity, and that inner insecurity constantly and relentlessly tries to prove and justify itself. And so we have to have feelings of superiority. We have to look better. We have to think better. We have to dress better. We have to have more. We have to feel like we're better than other people. We have to have something that separates us. And so that's why we choose our sports teams and our politicians and we look to our education and we look to our skin pigmentation and we look to uh, our education and our career and our, our social media status thinking that if we can have these things then we'll know that we're better than those people and though we know that good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. As a matter of fact, what we see in this text, there's two kinds of religions. See, religion is filling a hole. And so the first kind of religion is the religion of the Pharisees. It's moralism. Moralism says that if I am good and follow the rules, and maybe, just maybe, I can prove to God, myself and others, that I'm good enough to go to heaven. The other type of religion is the Herodian religion. This is individualism. This is you decide what you want to be and how you want to be it. You decide what is right and what's wrong. And the key to see utopia is through political solutions. But here's what you got to understand. Both of these religions, moralism on one side and individualism on the other, teach you the same thing. You become your own savior. Moralism says you become your own savior by being good. Individualism says you become your own savior because you choose what's good and what's right, and then you get a political solution to make sure it's codified. Both of them find identity and meaning in something else. They find their identity and meaning in what you do. Both are hostile towards Jesus because you don't need Jesus. If you're your own savior, why do you need Jesus? But here's the reality. Neither moralism nor individualism give you satisfaction. I mean, think about this. The reason why the Rolling Stones sang that song, I can't get no, can't get no satisfaction, is because in the middle of a sexual revolution where everyone was, was doing whatever they wanted to do, where there was sex and drugs and rock and roll, and everyone was expressing who they are, even though they were doing what they wanted to do with whoever they wanted to do with, they couldn't get satisfaction. And today, in our day, people that do whatever they want to do, you have boys that want to be girls and girls that want to be boys and some kids that want to be cats and dogs and chickens and all kinds of crazy things. And people say, I want to be who I want to be and love who I want to love and express how I want to express. Some of those people are still dissatisfied. All of them are. Because the end of individualism is not life, it's death. But the same is true with the moralist. The moralist who says, I gotta go to church, I gotta be a good person, I gotta try better, I gotta look better, I gotta think better, I gotta do better, I gotta prove myself to God, they're miserable too. Because they're squatting in their own self-righteousness. And guess where that leads you? To hell. But the beauty of Jesus is this, it's found in a simple phrase that he says, in verse 28, he says, the son of man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. You say, what's so important about that? Jesus doesn't say he's the Lord over the Sabbath. He, you know, Jesus is God. And he could have said, well, I make the rules and this is what the rules are. 
Uh, he doesn't say that. He could have. But he says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. And what he means is this. He is the Lord of rest. He is the only one who can give you rest. Jesus says, come to me, all you that are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Tim Keller says it best. He says, in religion, you really never rest because you're always trying to prove and justify yourself to God. But in Christianity, you can truly rest because Jesus did the work for you. See, on the cross, Jesus completed the work for us. He lived the life that we should have lived. He died the death that we deserve to die. And when he died on the cross, he said it was finished. And when he rose from the dead, it proves that what he did was enough. And so when you rest on what he has done, you leave your deadly doing behind and you rest knowing that God is satisfied with you because Jesus came to end religion. This week I was talking to a young man, sharing the gospel with him. And we were just talking, talking. And um, I said, have you come to a place in your life? And we, there's a long way to get to where we were. But I said, have you come to a place in your life where you have surrendered your life to Jesus, that you know that you're right with God, that you are a Christian? I try to be very careful with how I phrase things. And he looked at me and he says, I'm trying I'm trying. And I looked at him and I said, stop trying and trust. It's the same thing I'm saying to you today. Stop trying. Stop trying to be a good enough person so that you can go to heaven. Stop trying to just decide who you want to be because it's not going to be enough because you'll, you'll never be what you were meant to be if you're trying to choose it yourself. You have to say what he wants you to be. Stop trying. Trust. Let me end with this. In verse four, Jesus asked that question. Is it lawful to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? What Jesus was asking that day was for them to choose. He asked the Pharisees, choose life or death. Me or religion choose. And the Pharisees didn't say a word. They left the church and they went to plot his death. And what did they choose? They chose death because dead religion always leads to death. And if you really think about it a little bit more, not only did the Pharisees not say a word, no one said a word. No one said a mumbling word. The whole group, men, men that were at the bottom and the women that were at the top in the synagogue in Capernaum, none of them said a word and their silence spoke volumes about their unbelief because their silence said, I would rather have dead religion than a living Jesus. But there was one man, one man in that synagogue that did something one man in that synagogue stuck his hand out. He didn't know what to expect, but he stuck his hand out and he chose life. He chose Jesus. He chose Jesus over religion and he didn't care what anybody thought. He stuck his hand out, a hand of faith. And in that moment, he said, Jesus, you have to heal me. 
I'm depending on you to heal me. And Jesus healed him. He chose that Jesus be his savior, not himself. And so today, that's your choice. Are you gonna leave here silent? Are you gonna leave here the same way you came here? Critical, arrogant, trying to prove your worth to God? Are you gonna leave here giving your hand of faith to Jesus and letting him restore your life? The choice is yours. In all of our services, people have stuck a hand of faith up and said, today I've trusted Jesus as my savior. And I have no doubt that in this service at 1130, that there are people who need to stick a hand of faith up to Jesus. I'm not asking you, are you a member of this church? I'm not asking you if you have been baptized seven times. I'm not asking you if you give a lot of money. I'm asking you, have you come to a place in your life where you have stopped trying and have trusted in Jesus as your savior? And if you're here today and you say, I need to do that, then do it. And I wanna lead you to it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for what he has done today in this church, how people have given their lives to you. They've surrendered their life to you and all of our services. And so God, I pray this morning that this last service that your Holy Spirit would move and And God, would we not leave here the same way we came here? And so for those in this room that know in their life, know in their heart, they're not right with you. God, would today they stretch out a hand of faith towards you, that they would stop trying to be their own savior and trust you to be their only savior. And so Lord, for those in this room or those watching online that wanna trust you, would you pray a prayer like this? And so if you're here today and you need to trust Jesus as your savior, You can pray a prayer like this. You don't have to say the exact words. There's no magic in the words. It's just faith manifest in words that you say to God. So you can pray a prayer like this. If you want to be saved, pray with me. Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner and I cannot save myself. I cannot fix myself. There's no amount of good that I can do that it would ever be good enough. But Jesus, I believe you are good enough. And I believe you died on the cross. And I believe you rose from the dead. So Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Save me. I raise a hand of faith to you. Save me, Jesus, in your name. And I ever head bowed, ever eyes, nobody's looking but me. If you today just trusted Jesus as your Savior, for the first time. I want you to do something courageous. This is like that man did in the synagogue. No one's looking around, so I'm not gonna embarrass you. But would you raise your hand as high as possible? Raise it as high as possible if you just trusted Jesus. I see your hand. I see you. I see you. I see you. Raise as high as possible. High. Praise God. You can put your hands down. Those eight of you that just raised your hand, Praise the Lord. Father, give them courage and give them strength to make your gospel known, to make what you did in their life known today and give them the courage to live for you and to not be the same. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's give a hand to those eight that raised their hands. Amen. Woo!
Let's all stand and let's sing a praise song to King Jesus. Thank you for joining us as we go through God's Word together. I pray again that God will transform you from the inside out. So as we say here at first, you have come to church. Go out and be the church. Have a great week of worship. We can't wait to see you soon.